Good morning to all of our UK column viewers and listeners. Um, it's a lovely day here in Plymouth and I'm, be, I'm delighted to be in the studio today to uh, talk to Dr. Sam White. Um, now, I think many of, many of our current viewers and listeners will at least know something about uh, Dr. White because he's been in an extensive battle with the system uh, as a result of trying to uh, put out facts and information and truth about what's been happening around uh, COVID-19 and vaccines and indeed some of the adverse reactions uh, which have, have occurred as a result of the vaccines. So today we're, we're going to have a little bit of a recap as to what's happened to him and uh, then we're also going to have a look through really what the situation is now following uh, the court decision in his favour. Straight away, Dr. Sam White, welcome to UK Column, and thank you very much for giving us time to do this interview with you. Thank you. It's, um, it's lovely to be with you this morning. Thank you. Okay, and I understand that you've been working quite late uh, last night, so it's really a double thank you. Um, I'm going to admit I'm also slightly jaded because I had a very good family day yesterday. I met my new grandson. Uh, this was utterly brilliant. So two granddaughters and a grandson. And uh, that really keeps my mind on the issue of children. And that is certainly a topic I want to bring in with you towards the end of the interview today. But let's kick off. Tell us a little bit about your, yourself and your professional background. And tell us how you, you came into the media spotlight for speaking out. Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, my background is that I've, I've been qualified for 18 years. I, I now work exclusively outside of the medical matrix in something called functional or integrative medicine, which is more about root cause disease and much more um, in keeping with how I like to think about patients and disease and how to look after them. But in early 2020, I was very much still in the system as a GP um, and it didn't take long really a, a matter of weeks to to really see that everything we've been told uh, and I mean everything uh, is a barefaced lie um, and it's very easy to tease apart and I recently wrote an essay which is probably doing the rounds uh, at the moment on social media um, about about some of these lies and I think I've I've likened this period in 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 history to to a war. It albeit it's not kinetic at the moment, but it's a war for information. And and you know truth is the first casualty in any war. Uh, and we've seen propaganda like like never before. And it's come um, from the usual sources you might expect, but. Perhaps if you'd said to me, you know, when I was 18 years old, your profession will one day be used as a means to um, control people and control every aspect of their lives. So, you know, the totality, to that's where totalitarianism comes from, if you like. Um, I wouldn't have believed you. And so, you know, back in, you know, 2020, I wasn't happy with any of it, let alone the fact that we knew that there were treatments that work and people were just being allowed to suffer. Um, you know, when have you known a time in history when the health service has turned its back on people to the extent that, um, yeah, you've got COVID, call us back when your lips turn blue. 
you know, and then you might get some some dangerous in hospital care. Um, and towards the end of 2020, I had written quite extensively because every, people may not know this, but every every year we have to have an appraisal to say that we've been a good doctor or a bad doctor, you know. And then every five years following what happened with the, the sort of shipment inquiry, we have a relicensing process where we're, we're, the, the General Medical Council decides if we're okay to have our license. And I wrote extensively about all of this um, based on research from from masks to the to the myth of asymptomatic transmission, and in and in that I also said if you bring in mRNA vaccines, I will resign. Um, and and back then I'd, I'd also reached out to perhaps one of the few journalists I knew at the time to be speaking out, um, and you know Sonia Poulton, who who you might have heard of, and I wrote to her and I said this is my situation, I'm stuck here, and I need. You know, she said, come and tell me your story when when you're ready, you know. And so a few months later, uh, in early 21, I, I resigned. Um, and then a few months after that, I basically went public. Um, I had very few, you know, very little interaction on social media. I didn't really use it. But I, I took to social media to answer a very simple question, which was, what are all the doctors doing about this? So I, I did a very short video and that, you know, went, went viral, accidentally so. Um, and before I knew it, I was being um, suspended by emergency order by both the National Health Service and the General Medical Council and told it was because I was crazy. Dr. White, th thank you very much for taking us through that. It is incredible um, when we think that uh, you're a fully qualified professional in your mind as a professional, you start to have concerns about what's happening. Uh, but when you try and speak out, uh, you're effectively censored. And there's a clear wish of, we'll call it the system at this stage, um, to suppress what you say. My personal background, as many people know from many years ago, is, is I was a naval officer. I was working uh, in the time of the Cold War. And for me, I just reflect that at that time, everybody believed that we were in a free society in the West. And uh, one of the things that we had was fairness and a justice system. We were in a democracy and we had free speech. And then we jumped forward many years, in my case, to uh, 2020, 2022. And all of a sudden we see that even as a professional with concerns, for some reason, the state does not want us to speak out. And of course, this, this brings us into the key issue, uh, which will be why the state wasn't, uh, doesn't want us to speak out. But give us a little bit more detail about what your actual concerns were as you saw the COVID-19 and the vaccination programme unfold. What was it that caught your attention? Well, from the, from the very early on, um, you've got people losing their um, livelihoods and businesses. Um, you've got perfectly healthy people being told that they must stay at home, um, for which you will find no consensus to do that in anything in the medical literature. Quarantine is and always should be for the sick and those sick with a disease of high 
infectious consequence. Um, COVID was clearly not that, even though at, you know, at the very beginning, the government and um, the supranational organizations exaggerated the mortality figures as part of the sort of scare and, and fear tactics. Um, so there was zero reason other than those which can be considered sinister to effectively detain per perfectly healthy people. Exactly at that time, um, that's the quietest I've ever known things as, as a doctor in the system. The local hospital normally has ambulances queuing outside, but suddenly it's got um, free beds of around 200, 250 for, for, for about six to eight weeks. It was it was absolutely incredible. So all the time you're watching on the news, this daily death count, it, it didn't seem to be reflected in what I was seeing in practice. Um, and I'll give you an example. I was they, they set up a red COVID hub to a triage people with, you know, potential COVID. And I went and did my first shift there and it and it was empty. I didn't see a single patient. So something was clearly incongruent with what we were being told on the mainstream media. And you don't need to be a doctor to start asking questions about what's going on. Um, and then, of course, the, the, there was this myth that you could have um, an acute respiratory infection um, and yet not have any symptoms. Well, how, how then, without symptoms, are you going to effectively transmit that to someone else you're not it doesn't exist it's a, it's, a, it's a myth then we've got masks you know masks are are meant for you know typically in a medical setting a surgeon in theater who's not moving around he's not sweating into his mask or he might be if it's a particularly difficult operation but he's in a um a ventilated laminar flow um theater and it's there to prevent the transmission of mucus into um, an abdominal viscous or an open wound, for instance. Okay, um, that it these sorts of masks or face coverings, whatever you like, can can do absolutely nothing for a virus such as a SARS virus, which is aerosolized. And we we, we knew this from. The first SARS virus from a, from a famous study that was done in Hong Kong. Okay, um, they they knew it. The people telling you to wear a mask to protect yourself and protect others, the people telling you to take a vaccine, which isn't a vaccine, to protect yourself and to protect others, they know that they're lying um, because it's so easy. Um, even with a basic knowledge of, well, let's say, common sense basic medical knowledge, basic immunology, to know that, you know, this this has all been one big, big, big lie. Um, and then, of course, we move on to these these tests, which are, are not standalone medical diagnostic tools, okay? They don't exist in the absence of clinical assessment. They shouldn't be used on people with no symptoms. Um, and, and it just kept going from there on end. And I was very much aware that there were doctors around the world, um, some in South America, for instance, in Argentina. Um, and then we have later on the miracle of Uttar Pradesh in India, who were using off-patent, very safe drugs, very effectively 
to stop people going into hospital. I mean, when, for instance, if in any of those press conferences, did you ever hear, you know, any of the government or any of their patsies say, you know, you need good vitamin D, you need vitamin D for every cell in your body for your immune system to function. And yet nearly everyone dying on intensive care was severely deficient in vitamin D. Okay. Yeah, it was just very, very basic things. Before you get to the introduction of an experimental um, biologic, which takes 10 to 12 years to make safe, if you ever can make it safe. And I would I'd be cautious about that as well. Right. One of the things that I've, well, I've been curious about for a long time, and it's a question I try and ask every professional, medical professional I can, is when you, when you initially had these concerns, um, presumably you spoke to other colleagues about your concerns and your worries about what was going on. If you if you did that, and I'm sure you did, what what was their reaction? Um, I I was the wacky conspiracy theorist. Okay, I suspect I still am. I you know I wear that as a badge of honour. Um, but I was, for instance, not walking around the practice, you know, because there wasn't many patients there at that time. I wasn't walking around with a you know a face covering or a mask around, and I would get, you know emails saying I was frightening other members of staff, you know, so I was really coming up against quite a bit of antagonism, but really actually relying on truth and science. And the message I got loud and clear was they weren't interested. It felt to me, and it still does feel to me, because people ask me, there must be loads, they'll say to me, you know, there must be loads of doctors who know, but just aren't speaking out. And and I'm really not sure about that when it comes to the UK, because I actually think that the vast majority of doctors still think to this very day that they've done and are still doing a very good thing in giving these injections to people. Okay. Now, all you need to do is take a cursory look at the yellow card system or VAERS or Eurovigilance, any of those. And perhaps you don't even have to be aware of the massive under-reporting figure, but just have a little glance at that and think something's seriously wrong here. But that's not happening because doctors um, could have put a stop to this nonsense from day one. They still could. It would stop overnight. Right. But that's not happening. This this is a very key point because, of course, then we need to we, we need to say, why is it not happening? And... What what you've just said to me, I've I've had said to me by other professionals that they describe it as trying to talk to colleagues who just would not listen, or it was like a wall went up. It was like they they could almost not hear the words that you were com- that were coming out of your mouth, um, even though what you were saying was simple and it was correct in a profession pro- professional and a medical sense. So we we what has been described to me is that other medical professions uh, almost seem mesmerized by the official line. You could only use the official words. You could only talk about the official response to COVID-19. And if you veered off that at all, then the system was going to be pretty onerous, pretty draconian, certainly within the NHS to try and 
push you back on track. But yes, colleagues who some people had said they, they've known for years as friends also became very um, cold in their, their rebuttal uh, when somebody was trying to go against the official line. I, I've mm. given a little descriptor there. Does that resonate with you? It does, absolutely. I think I, I, I'm torn on this one. Um, I think when we consider the fact that we know now that the government has used um, psychological military grade warfare on its own population, you probably have to include in there the doctors and scientists. Being clever or having a high IQ, high intellect doesn't necessarily exclude you from being vulnerable to that. Okay. However, that does not mean that you can't do your due diligence. Okay. We know, and we, we should have had every right to suspect before December 2021 that the Pfizer trial was, was laughable. It was a joke. Okay. It wasn't in any way an acceptable clinical trial. It was unblinded after a couple of months anyway. Um, but, you know, there's no good, for instance, having a product that's so good that stops COVID, which it doesn't, but then the people given it are more likely to have a heart attack. You know, that's not a good product, okay? And even if you just think about it in terms of the free market, you know, like um, you will hear Dr. Ron Paul talk about, you know, many times, is if this product was so good, Okay, you wouldn't need to mandate it. You wouldn't need indemnity for it. People would be queuing, well, they are queuing up, but people would be, be wanting to have it without any of those um, safeguards for the, for the big um, you know, pharmaceutical giants who were not dealing necessarily with good, honorable institutions or corporations here. We're dealing with serial felons, you know? Um, Doctors know full well what happened with uh, a previous jug. Um, it came out probably just before I'd qualified in 04, called um, Rofacoxib or Viox, made by Merck. Okay. Um, and that was a drug which was sold to doctors as being a painkiller, an anti inflammatory, a bit like ibuprofen in the kind of same family but without the effects of causing irritation or stomach ulceration. So it was given out, you know, quite widely. And then people started having heart attacks. And it later transpired that Merck had hidden that data. Okay. And what they'd done is they essentially made an actuarial decision, which is, okay, if we hide that data, okay, that many people may die, we can afford the payouts for those people, but we'll make much more money on selling the drug overall. Okay. And, and that's before you consider, you know, the Purdue who are involved with OxyContin. You know, we're not necessarily dealing with people who you can, who you can rely on to be truthful and honest. So you have to do your due diligence. Okay. You have to be sure that, that what they're telling you is the truth. It could never be 95% effective. How did I know that without seeing the trial? Well, very basically, we have immunoglobulins 
IgA, as it's known, which is in our respiratory tract and in our bowel, it's called our secretory immunoglobulin. Okay, so if you're going to encounter a respiratory virus or pathogen, you want your secretory immunoglobulin to kick into effect, to be the one that, that fends off the infection. That's like your first line of defense. And yet, where is this you know, injection given? It's given in the arm. So that has no effect really on your secretory immunoglobulin in your respiratory tract. That's absorbed by the bloodstream. And if it's going to cause an immunoglobulin response, it's going to be in the blood, the circulatory immunoglobulin. So by design, it's in the wrong place to start with. <laughs> so how is it 95% effective based on that? Okay, it's very basic. One of our um, experts, um, Professor Baxi, did a, did a report on this for us, and that was one, one of the things that we submitted to the police. Um, another bit of evidence that they dismissed, of course, but... You know, it, it was laughable when I first heard that figure, is what I'm saying. I knew, it, I knew it was wrong. So why would I then not do any due diligence? I had to. Yeah. So uh, uh, brilliant, but extremely interesting. I just want to jump back now, because what, what have you done there? You, you've really set the scene for our audience today about your professional knowledge and your concerns around the issues. You, you try and use that knowledge and you try to speak out. Um, you, you try to talk to other colleagues and essentially you're stonewalled and shut down. But eventually you end up putting your resignation letter on social media. That's what triggered uh, from what I can oh, that see. Hasn't gone up yet, actually. That hasn't gone up. Oh, really? Um, yeah, the, the, what, what went up was really just a discussion uh, in video form, um, okay. and it came really off the cuff um, after someone had asked that question, what are all the doctors doing? And I made a quick video in which you can see I'm visibly very angry and upset um, because uh, I was tearing my hair out at that time as well. Um, my resignation letter had gone in about six months before. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you put up a summary video, but then really that that kickstarts a lot of things happening. So you you end up in this battle with the GMC and another body, the Medical Practitioners Tribunal Service, and just give us take us just through what they tried to do to you, and then how you had to fight back to that ultimate decision in your favour by Mr. Justice. Dove with the assistance of Francis Hall QC and um, yeah and Philip Highland. What they do is they get you in front of a kangaroo court as quickly as possible, um, and they start proceedings by saying you don't consider evidence, which was very convenient for them because even within the first couple of weeks, of, you know, of that being arranged for me after being told I was crazy and all these things. Um, they dismissed over a thousand pages of evidence, including expert witness testimony from people like, you know, Dr. Mike Eden, uh, Professor McCullough, um, Lee Merritt, ev everyone. We had it all. You know, well, we have we have even more now, but we had enough within a couple of weeks. I I would have gone to having a full trial the next day, and I'd prior to that kangaroo court, I said to Francis, 
um, look, this is what I've been told about these processes. And for anyone who doubts it, go and have a look at um, the number of doctors who commit suicide going through this process. Um, because the aim is to destroy you in that time. It's a process. It's not about fairness. It's not about who's right or wrong. The aim is to destroy you. And when that hearing had finished, I mean, all they had was 18 anonymized complaints. So I wasn't allowed to see, you know, the accused or their identity. It's, we'll come back to that, actually, because it's quite an interesting one. Um, and then we had all this evidence and their barrister spoke for 20 minutes about these anonymized complaints, complaining of misinformation, you know, so it's the communists who don't like free speech, basically. Um, and then Francis destroyed them for two hours. And then they came back with, well, we're going to put a gagging order on him. We don't consider evidence, all, all this nonsense. And by the way, we want a full psychiatric assessment of, of, of me. And we think it's going to take 18 months to two years to have a full trial. Therefore, in that time, all of these conditions apply. Um, and Francis came back and he said, I've never seen anything like it. We immediately agreed we'd go to, you know, to the high court and appeal. Um, and, and that was an interesting day. Um, again, because it's very hard to win in, in what I call their system. Um, but the flaws in the General Medical Council argument and how they conducted themselves was was so obvious um, that that it probably was, you know, an easy one to get across the line, if you like. Um, in the context of that particular year, no other COVID cases being won. You know, you, you saw all of the other, you know, the childhood vaccines, all of those that, you know, just went ahead regardless. They just went full steam. Um, my hope, because I could have just... I could have just stuck with those orders. Um, I could have just took that on the chin. But my hope was really that when we won and when we showed that the General Medical Council had breached my human rights to be a free member of society and engage in, you know, in public speaking and, and debates and be a part of the conversation, as is my right, as is everyone's right, um, I thought there would be an outpouring from doctors now coming forward, feeling more secure that they could speak up. Um, unfortunately, that's not that's not what has transpired at all. To, to date, doctors remain my biggest critics, and and probably vice versa, to be honest. Um, but that's what makes me think that they still believe that what they're doing is a good and just thing. Right. OK. And ju just to be clear, so the decision by Mr. Justice, Mr. Justice Dove was that you should be free to there should be no gagging order on you and you should be free to say whatever you want to say. Did it did it describe it as on social media or did it describe it as you should be free to say whatever you wanted via the media and press? Yeah, no, he revoked all, all of the conditions including, which included, I think the GMC by that time had dropped their request for a psychiatric assessment. 
um, because that actually made them look bad because they had no evidence on which to base the requirement for a psychiatric assessment. Um, so it, it, it revoked all conditions. Um, after I'll just say that after the initial kangaroo court hearing where they placed these conditions on me, they were actually very vague and they didn't clarify them. And that's one of the things he put them, he picked them up on. Um, I then appeared later that month on the Corona Investigative Committee with Dr. Reiner Formick. I didn't share that on my social media, but they ref the GMC referred me back to another kangaroo court hearing for the fact that the Corona Investigative Committee put it on their social media. So the General Medical Council thinks it has jurisdiction not just over me or my social media, but over that of others, in including a dual qualified attorney who set up an extrajudicial inquiry to consider crimes against humanity, essentially. Wow. That's how blatant, arrogant, and how much disregard they have for what's lawful or what's even morally right. Right. Well, I, I certainly hope that in the audience today, if we've got uh, professionals watching and listening, and I'm very sure we will have, that they're really pay, paying attention to what you're talking about. The bit that the, you've really surprised me in one way, but not another, I'll explain that, but you've really surprised me because I didn't know that they'd, they'd tried the psychiatric uh, trick. And of course, this is something that we see, we've seen in many cases, particularly uh, unfortunately, in child protection cases where one parent, could be the mother, could be the father, has tried to stand up and protect their child from what they consider abuses by the state or, the, or social services or child protection. And very, very quickly, they're accused of being mentally unwell. And we want psychiatric assessments before we can sort of prog progress the case. And again, I, I say in response to yourself and, and the audience, this is exactly the tactics of the Soviet system. The gulag of the camps was all about using um, false claims of mental illness to silence critics of the state or crit critics of the, of the Soviet system. But here we are, we're supposedly in a Western democracy, UK in 2020, 2022, and uh, many people still believe we're in a democracy. Clearly, we're not. So that that is that's an incredible situation, um, and it, and it shows how desperate they are. They were to try and silence you as a professional. And this brings us really back to the subject of why are these people so frightened when any professional stands up to put forward a counter position. So, Dr. White, you, you've used some pretty strong descriptors in, um, in your explanation uh, so far. You've talked, about, you, you've talked about a war, you've talked about a war of information, you've talked about propaganda, and you've also talked about the use of psychology. Now, I think with psychology, you're probably referring to the government spy B team, which is a subset organization committee whatever we want to call it of the government's overall covid sage team which was the lead scientific team uh, but what we discovered about uh, spy b of course by their own minutes 
uh, was that they were using applied psychology in order to make the population in UK more fearful, more effectively more anxious about the COVID crisis so that people would adhere more strongly to the government's lockdown and mask wearing and social distancing policies. And uh, UK Columns reported on this quite a lot. I was shocked by, but not surprised when I discovered this because of course um, we'd, all, we'd already reported over several years of the government's use of applied political psychology in UK and we'd highlighted to our audience the um, behavioural insights team which was the original British government's team which developed the use of applied psychology. They, they tried to call it nudging because I think they felt it had a kinder feel to it, but what it really was was applied psychology to get people to do things which they otherwise might not do if they were using common sense. And to me, this brings us into a very dark area because um, we know for a fact via Spy B that this type of psychology was being unleashed on the public. But we also know via other document chains that the government was using um, applied psychology within its own departments, of which the first one was DEFRA, shortly before the foot and mouth crisis in UK. And therefore, we get an indication that if we're now starting to see strange reactions from professionals, be it civil servants or other people in the police, for example, or perhaps even the perhaps the NHS, uh, this could well be due to the fact that the government has been using applied psychology to skew the way people think. This has got to be an attack on people's minds. It's an attack on the public. It's an attack on the civil service and other professionals like yourself. Is, is that is that statement too far? Or do you, do you think it's... Um, no, I I often go further. Um, <laughs> um, no, I mean this is all pre-planned. They had to. Uh, I mean, I'll give you. I'll give you an example. A lot. A lot of people talk to me about. You know, have they even isolated it? Uh, that you know the virus. Uh, and we've got one member of our team and one piece of evidence, for instance, that was submitted to the police, where we had over 150 international um, institutions who were unable to provide evidence of isolation of SARS-CoV-2, okay? What I'll say to people is, that didn't matter. They didn't need to isolate it. They didn't even need to prove it existed in any way. They just had to create the fear that it did. And that's what, that's, that's what this is about, okay? Um, and that's why the, you know, the mainstream media immediately switched to, you know, whilst I'm saying the hospitals are empty, by and large, they, they immediately switched to having these these daily conferences to amplify the fear. And, and one of the, the, the clever things they did, if you like, is um, determine that the, the, the fear or risk was equally applied across all age groups and demographics. And it's not. It's very clearly a condition which does discriminate against those who are frail elderly, have multiple medical comorbidity, significantly low vitamin D levels, you know, for one, it's, it's, it's not something um, that 
affects young people. It's certainly not something that affects uh, in any statistical, meaningful way children. Um, and yet they've had to use these, this fear narrative to terrify parents um, into subjecting their child to an experimental injection, which, you know, behaves in every way like a toxin, like, like, a, like a bioweapon, if you like. Um, and there's no way they could have done that um, if people were presented with the objective evidence within which I'm sure the government has in their possession um, and which can be found, you know, if you want to do the trawling and the investigative work for yourself, you will see that, you know, there's been this explosion of inflammatory heart disease, um, you know, particularly in young adolescents, which I suspect is related to, to, to androgens in, in that age group. But, you know, I mean, some of the injuries I see now um, are absolutely horrific, okay? Um, Life-changing for young people who were never, ever, ever at risk. And when I say risk, we also need to consider that this was always a condition that is more treatable than influenza. Okay. Um, we just haven't been allowed and we're still not allowed to even talk about or mention those treatments which work. You know, Professor McCullough published a paper on multisequential drug therapy early in the community. Okay. We know what we can use to treat it, but we're not allowed to. And yet you've got people taking it because they wanted to get into a nightclub, because they wanted to go traveling, or parents giving it to their children because they want to take them on holiday, okay? That is never, none of those things are ever the basis for making a medical decision, let alone one which is entirely experimental, entirely unsafe, should never, ever, ever have been brought to market. And I say that based on what was known prior to its introduction, prior to even looking at the trials. There was every reason to suspect that this would be very harmful. Okay, we, we, we now get to a, a very, very interesting point because both of us are describing from, we're applying common sense. I, I think we've got reasonable yeah. intelligence. Uh, we've, we're both trained as professionals, different areas. But we're now saying that there's a war going on and you are describing the fact that people are suffering physical, neurological, uh, life-changing or even death as a result of the government's policy. We've got a government that's using applied psychology to make people stressed and anxious to follow the very things which you describe are, are making people ill or sick or they're dying. This has got to be an attack on the public by our own government. If the government is, is unleashing and enacting policies which are making people sick, ill, and ultimately some of them are dying, and the, the statistical information is there via, for example, the yellow card system to show that something is wrong, as uh, following the vaccine policy at least, then there is a malicious attack on the public itself by our own government 
and its agents, of which one will be the NHS. I, I come to that conclusion. Well, I came to that conclusion a long time ago, but this is something that's very difficult to get across uh, to people who are used to thinking that the government is there to protect them. No, we're, we're looking at a government which is attacking the population in UK. If that premise is correct, and I'm very sure it is correct, then you have to ask the next question, which is, why do you think our government would be doing that? Why are they attacking us? That's one you really have to go down the rabbit hole and you have to question who they who they work for. Okay, so in terms of government, man is is above government. We we elect government to serve us. Okay, although that's what we think. Okay, in fact, the agents of government, MPs, the House of Lords, they actually work for what is a bankrupt corporation. Okay, the United Kingdom, all you know, Australia, Canada, United States. These are all corporations. We think of them as countries, but they're corporations, and they're in something called Chapter Eleven bankruptcy. And this, I, I'm going to actually talk about this in Healthcare the Future and uh, about what happened, particularly um, in the wake of the Wall Street crash and in 1933, where the U.S. Uh, people had their gold and silver confiscated. That that seems to me to be the time when the bankruptcy of nations was completed. Okay, so if say you're you're a business and you're in bankruptcy, who are you beholden to? You're beholden to the creditors. Okay, you can't um, keep everyone as another ambulance going off there. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> happens a lot these days. Um, you can't pay for people to stay at home, spend billions on PPE or vaccines without the ability to print your own currency. Okay, I doubt you could do that with money that was backed with gold and silver. But of course, um, England, the UK, we came off you know, the gold and silver standard before the First World War. You can't go to war if, you, if you're on a you know, metals-backed uh, system. But what I'm trying to say in a very roundabout way is that these people don't work for us. Okay, they work for the people who supply the money to them, to us. And then they charge us via the tax system to use their, their currency. It's not money, it's currency. And so they charge us usury, you know, to use their money. That's what that is. Um, and I, I think we've become accustomed, you know, and from from a young age to thinking that the government is there for us, we the people, and that it serves us. And yet all these things seem to happen. We seem to go into illegal wars, regime change wars, neocon wars. We have a million dead Iraqis. And yet Tony Blair is not just a free man. He's a knight, an order of the garter now. Okay, um, that's that seems at odds in keeping it with most of we the people's values. You know, there was no need to go to war there or in Libya. We were never under threat, and yet it happened anyway. And I think all this time we've been looking on from the side of the road, wondering what's going on here. We didn't vote for this. Surely we didn't. But it happens anyway. And now what we've had, instead of them attacking another country, 
is a belligerent government attacking its own people, which to me, it seems like the perfect opportunity for a mass awakening amongst us, we the people, to work out what we do want and how we want this world to be. Right. Thank, thank you very much for that. I, I agree with everything you've said. I think I'll just add that if we, if we even come in at a slightly softer angle, uh, we've got these big globalist companies that are embedded in, in, in the whole of the financial control system. So we've got the bankruptcy, yes, but we've got these huge com country, sorry, we've got these huge companies. Um, very often their, their budget is bigger than the, the whole of the GDP of a lot of smaller world countries. Mm. Um, by making people sick and then selling the pharmaceutical products to make them better, this delivers billions of pounds of profit. And what I have found absolutely remarkable is that if we come on to the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency in UK, the organisation which should be protecting the public from vaccine adverse reaction, from vaccine damage, um, if you listen to their own testimony through their own board meetings with Chief Executive June Rain talking, she is boasting of the MHRA working with the global pharmaceutical industry uh, for the MHRA to become the lead global regulator. So if, if the MHRA is supposed to be a, a detached independent body protecting the public from damaging pharmaceutical and vaccine products, it's clearly not doing that job because overwhelmingly they, they are boasting of working with the pharmaceutical industry to develop products into the future. And hand in glove with that is the fact that the information that the yellow card system has collected to date clearly shows in its over one and a half million vaccine adverse reactions for over probably about 440,000 uh, individual cases, because of course uh, an individual can have more than one vaccine adverse reaction, but over one and a half million cases, over 2,000 deaths, and yet the MHRA is consistently proving they have not done any due diligence, any risk analysis into what the vaccines are actually doing and, and what the extent of the damage is. So you've got billions of pounds of profits for uh, enforcing these pharmaceutical products onto the population. Um, you've got the regulatory agency protecting the pharmaceutical companies and if you become sick and you end up in if you become sick as a result of a vaccine and you end up in an nhs hospital they can sell even more drugs supposedly to to try and deal with your conditions or make you better this is mm. this is a racket on, on a global on a global scale mm. Where, mm. where the actual physical health of the people don't matter because the sicker they are, the more profit can be made. Yeah, I mean, it's an excellent business model for them. It's, it's a terrible one for, for we the people. And you'll appreciate why um, the MHRA and June Rain in particular was um, the subject of the police investigation, which we 
and myself and two solicitors and a retired policeman instigated on the 20th of December, along with the National Health Service and the General Medical Council. Uh, and we purposely set the bar quite low for the Metropolitan Police. We, we said, you know, gross negligent manslaughter, at the very least, um, and misconduct in public office. Um, and yet these, these are the people culpable in the deaths of we the people. <laughs> um, and yet two months later, um, what transpires is the four of us get a three-paragraph letter from a superintendent saying, nothing to see here, there's no, no crimes. And within a few days, myself and my two solicitors receive further regulatory disciplinary action. We managed to track down uh, some of the complainants this time, particularly in regard to the solicitors regulator, because we said, hang on, hang on a second. If, if these are... If these complainants are anonymized, how, how do we know, for instance, that they were not the subject of, of the police investigation which we'd instigated? And two of those, well, one was the British Medical Association, probably has a vested interest in keeping quiet what's going on. And another was a member of the House of Lords. Yeah. Okay, this goes right to the top. So when, when the police investigation was closed down, um, it was done so on the basis of them having received an independent report showing the presence of graphene oxide in the vials, which we did. Um, we literally had it all. We had over 40 experts around the world who are prepared to help the Metropolitan Police. Now, I should add that police force is now in special measures um, and we have appealed directly to Andrew Cook, who's the head of Her Majesty's Inspectorate on this. Haven't heard anything back. That you sh You'll probably know already that there's going to be a public inquiry, um, which a member of our team has ridden personally to, and we've been told that they're not there to consider criminal matters and that we should take our complaint to the police. Yeah. So for anyone with high hopes of a public inquiry um, shedding light onto what's really happened, um, I, I think that might be a false hope. Yeah, unfortunate, unfortunately. To support you and what you're saying, and, and also to give people a bit of hope, because it is a very tough subject to be talking about when so many people have been adversely affected, damaged and died. Um, what, what I thought about earlier on was the sheer number of people that are, that are agreeing with what you've been saying. So we've got all of the doctors who've taken part in Doctors for COVID Ethics. And again, the UK column has, has put up, facilitated and put up a lot of the uh, conferences yeah. where they've been speaking out. So you have a number of professionals there all giving the same warnings that you've been giving. Um, we've, of course, got uh, Reiner Fulmick and his, uh, his own investigation, who you've mentioned, with a large number of people coming on board to tell him what they have found and why they are concerned. Um, we've also uh, interviewed a number of French doctors who've uh, spoken out on the issue. So now we can say, we, well, we it's... Well. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not just something where we've got doctors in UK who are concerned. We can hop over the channel and we've got French profession professionals, of which I think the lead was Professor Christian Perron, who in his day was head of the vaccine policy in France. He was the lead man and he was prepared to say on camera to us, not once but uh, twice, that he, he found the whole of the COVID-19 policy and the vaccination policy madness. He described it as, as madness. And in his view, no sane professional could support the French government's policy and, of course, the UK column's equivalent. Uh, we've had um, a really excellent French lady, Christine Cotton, a biostatistician, uh, worked in uh, the, the, the key labs, able to say, from her professional knowledge in, in the uh, virology labs and also with the stats that go around it, there is no way you could develop a safe vaccine in the timescale they claim to do it. Uh, we've got another lab professional, another French lady called Anne-Marie Yim, who's spoken out and said uh, what is happening is, is outrageous and dangerous and wrong. And then we've got... Uh, we've got um, Professor Norman Fenton, uh, who spoke to us recently on the subject of st statistics and, and the analysis of those statistics, and he's saying it's outrageous how the truth has been covered up. So they've tried to claim that you have got mental health issues, but the reality is that there are many, many professional people who share your opinion. Some of them, I think, are even more outspoken and yet their opinion is of no importance to the police, it's of no importance to the NHS, and it's no importance to the, to the government. So yes, what we're witnessing here is a cover-up, but what we can say to our audience is, actually there are a lot of people now prepared to stand up and be counted. Are you getting, um, uh, what is the word? Are you beginning to feel that there is support out there? You must have felt very lonely when you'd first spoken out. Are you now feeling that there are many more good people speaking out with you? I've never felt lonely um, since speaking out. And I'll tell you why. It was almost <laughs> divine intervention, if you like. But as soon as I did and took that courageous step and i'm saying this to, to doctors and scientists now i was i was met with you know you're in life we always are often confronted by equal challenge and equal support you know that's one way of thinking about something's going well but then, then something else comes along just to yeah. but but actually what i got was overwhelming support okay i mean i the the medical insurer that I paid thousands to over the years said, oh, we can't help you because this is a disciplinary issue. You know, it's a behavioral problem. And within a couple of days, Philip Highland is picking up the phone to me and saying, we're going to do this together. And he said, I'm going to do this for my grandchildren. And then suddenly I was met with this wall of support that far outweighed what they've done to me. And they've done some pretty mean stuff to me, you know. Um, I won't, I won't go into it because I don't, I don't like, I'm not playing the victim card here. But if you do come forward, if you do speak out, you will find the same. You will have overwhelming support. Why? Because the public have had enough. They know that they're being lied to. If they don't know that, they suspect so. Okay. And 
this is about, I think, the ultimate time to expose one of the most corrupt industries on the earth, which is Big Pharma, the biggest donor to Congress. Okay. And for all the tragedy and the grief that's happened to all of us, for all the applied psychology that's created this massive schism between those who have and those who haven't, there's going to be unity at the end of the day with us coming together to realize a common enemy. Okay. Um, and that those people in parliament, they don't work for us. So it's up to us to build the world we want to live in. Yeah. Okay. It's going to take some time. You know, most wars are five or six years. Um, but I, I do actually believe, and I, I, this might be a misplaced belief, I fully accept that, but we are w witnessing and in the process of seeing a changing of the old guard. Yeah. Okay. But it's up to us. Uh, really excellent and uh, totally agree with that. And a, a lot of it is is really we've got to look inside ourselves as well, because um, we're all guilty of of not doing things in the past when we could have. Trouble is, as you get older, actually, you've got more years to look at yourself for that. But it, it's true of all of us. So many people had the opportunity to stand up and be counted and to say, no, this is not right. And they didn't do it. But things have got so serious now that uh, people have got to do that. But the other thing I think in your your story, I'm going to call it, and I know I know it's a lot more than that. But I, something that I think is very nice is is when I look at the the number of people who have come forward. I'm going to call it new new media as opposed to alternative media. Who came forward yeah. to help you? I need my glasses again now. But we got. Sonia Poulton, you mentioned early on, and of course she's been doing tremendous work for a long time. You've got the People's Health Alliance, uh, Najid uh, Nawa, who uh, did a really good Najid interview. Najid Nawaz, yeah. Okay, no, yeah. Nawaz, okay, who did a very good interview. I should, I should say that I, I did appear on his LBC show live, uh, and that got pulled from their channel immediately. Okay. Right. And I was specifically referring to Norman Fenton's research. Right. And Norman, Norman Fenton speaks about how he can't get his work published. Indeed. So <laughs> you, you made an impact with that one. Uh, we've got holding, yeah. holding the Line. We've got Dr. Sarah Myhill. We've got Conservative Woman. Uh, they've been publishing some really excellent stuff. So well done to them. We've got cardiologist Professor Peter McCulloch, James Dellingpole, The Sergeant Report. And there's a few others. And I, I think this is utterly wonderful because, of course, now we're getting strength in numbers across new media. And I couldn't resist just putting your name into Google to see what came up. I think most people will do a search with Google, which is why I used it. And it was, it was just fascinating that there was nothing from the mainstream media of any substance about you. The first article I did find was a BBC one that admitted the basic facts of your win, of, of that legal win, but it, the, the BBC didn't, didn't print anything to do with your base concerns about what was going on. So that was another cleverly crafted BBC propaganda article to make sure the public didn't understand, here's a fully qualified doctor um, talking about these concerns. So I think it's becoming ever more obvious to the public that the BBC and the top newspapers 
are simply lying very often by omission. They don't actually say something's untrue. They spin the story to support the government line by admitting the facts. But this is becoming ever more obvious. And with, with people in new media helping, I think we're starting to get a big wedge in. Uh, I know we're coming to the end of, of the time you said you could give me. So just one thing I want to end on, and I mentioned my grandchildren, because as I see mm. those, those new little lives coming into the world, you think, my goodness, what's in store for them? Just tell us a little bit about your particular concerns for what's been happening um, and around vaccinations and, and young children. Because this ought to say to every parent, you've got to join this. You can't be at home uh, sitting and watching and not doing something. So what, what has concerned you about the whole of the policy and children? Um, well, if you go back to my resignation letter, which ha hasn't been released yet, but it's early 21, end of 2020, I, I said that the government's narrative will change to involve ever younger people, including including children. Children, healthy children are at no statistical risk whatsoever of coming to harm from COVID. Them taking this vaccine, which isn't a vaccine, it's a toxic injection, protects no one. It protects no one else. It doesn't protect granny. It just simply puts them at risk. And the risks are massive and they are grave. Do not ever, ever give this to a child. Okay, the government are not on your side. They don't care about you or your family. It's your, it's your decision. Do not give this to your child to take your child on holiday, please. Um, and the, the reason um, I believe that they're including children is to further the, the equality of the indemnity protection that's afforded to them. And they need that indemnity because otherwise these would be totally bankrupt pharmaceutical corporations with the, the amount they'd have to pay out in lawsuits. Yeah, that's a very sobering point. And I think we, we're going to end there. You, you've been very kind in giving us time. You've got work to do. Uh, but what a <laughs> thought, the idea that we're in a country where we're being attacked by our own government. Why? Because that government is itself a... Uh, a pardon? It's belligerent government. It's belligerent and it's controlled by financial and, and big industry globalist in, uh, interests. And ultimately, they are prepared to even sacrifice our children in order to make profit. Every parent needs to react to this. Dr. Sam White, I'm going to say thank you very much for speaking to us today. I could, have, <laughs> I could speak to you for another hour, but I know you're busy. So I, I very much hope we can speak again. Um, there's a lot yeah. of other areas to go into, including the fact that we see uh, the, pharm the, the, the um, medical industry, pharmaceutical industry, is heading into everything to do with data and genomics as opposed to holistic treating of people. And I'd love to get your thoughts on some of that, but we'll keep it for next time. We'll say today, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.